I was just like rolling around on a floor in a dance class. So I feel like relaxed actually, which is good. That is um, what they recommend. You know, that and eat a green apple. And if you roll around on the floor and then eat a green apple, you're ready to podcast. (laughs) So many, so many, so many damn books. Welcome to So Many Damn Books, a blessing, a curse, a podcast. My name is Christopher, and I am joined in the damn library by Amy Kurzweil, uh, who is a New Yorker cartoonist, the author of Flying Couch, a graphic memoir. She's collected quite a mass of fellowships, including McDowell and Jurassi, and she's published in Lit Hub, Verge, New York Times Book Review, and many, many others. But you're here today to talk your brand new artificial, a love story. Thanks for coming. It's great to be here. (laughs) I'm so glad to have you back. It's great to be back in a different damn library. Or is it the same damn library because... It's oh, the, the damn library is in your heart. <laughs> <laughs> but are they the same damn books? Some of them must be, right? So, uh, some of from seven years ago. Is that when you were last seven. on? Seven, yeah, exactly. Well, I don't know exactly when you had me on, but my my first book, Flying Couch, came out seven years ago. Seven is like the lucky number. It's kind of a biblical number. Yeah. So I think it make I think it fits that every seven years, like like a locust, <laughs> I'm gonna you come lo- out and release your book. Locusts are 13 years. Not seven. I thought it was seven, but yeah, Thir- but every, it might be seventeen. Oh, maybe it's seven. Okay, <laughs> unclear on these numbers, but seven every seven years. I heard Chris Ware say at a reading once that cartoonists are like locusts because we go underground and then we come out like a very like a lot of time passes and then we come out with another graphic novel. So <laughs> I am here spawning my graphic novel. Yes, and I'm so excited to have you. Um, Artificial is a singular achievement and I'm looking forward to discussing it with you. The next thing that I do is talk about the drink. Mm -hmm. And this book inspired me immediately to try a drink that I've been hearing about online. I wish I could remember where I first heard it um, because it seems like sacrilege when I first heard it. Because mm-hmm. it involves this um, spirit, which I've talked about on the show before, um, chartreuse, green chartreuse. Mm-hmm. And it's made by these monks uh, who are deciding that with their secret recipe and the way that they make their wonderful liqueur, that they are going to cut back. They're not going to make as much as they used to because it's too stressful. <laughs> so... It's kind of crazy to me to think of this stuff that's like in high demand, like bars really count on it for some really high-end cocktailing. And um, the idea that you would mix it with Gatorade is (laughs) is a crazy thought. And yet I was seeing this and I, as soon as I put the pages down of artificial, I was thinking about artificial flavors and, and wanting you to come on the show and thinking, well, what better time and what better reason? And so I don't have any green chartreuse. I've not been able to find a bottle. But this Boomsma Klusterbitter, um, mm-hmm. which I've used in past cocktails, is delicious. Mm-hmm. And um, I mix that with, indeed, lemon lime Gatorade, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, lime juice, salt, and a pinch of MSG. And I <laughs> shake that with ice. Another artificial flavor. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And Which turns out is not bad for you. No, exactly. Yeah. That was a... That was just racism. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> so it and it but it makes this bizarre flavored cocktail. Mm-hmm. I can't I can't really explain this flavor. Yeah. I mean it's I, I'm very 
pleased with the color. I'm very <laughs> pleased with this direction because I feel it's it's lime green and I feel like I'm on Mars. <laughs> I feel like I'm drinking alien blood or something. And it's just, you know, my book is not about aliens, but it's about AI. So close enough, you know. Uh, so I just I, I like that. I like the direction you went in with the artificial flavoring and the color and the and also the spirituality of the monks mm-hmm. like spirit, spirituality, aliens, artificial flavoring. It all fits really well <laughs> with my book. So. I'm so glad. Well, I highly recommend everybody try to make um, this drink. You can get the recipe on uh, so many damn slash the damn bar. And it really is, it is, it is not a waste of your chartreuse or your um, chartreuse uh, substitute, as we are all uh, finding in these times of need. Mm-hmm. Not a bad use for your Gatorade. Oh, I feel yeah. like I, whenever, I, whenever I'm, you know, sick or hungover or something, I'll buy way too much Gatorade. <laughs> like, not drink it and be like, this is not something I want in my house anymore. So it just kind of like piles up in the back of the fridge. I see. So I feel like this is a good way to repurpose it for your three quarter full bottles of Gatorade (laughs) that are amassing that's that's so funny Mm -hmm. yeah because you think like I need I need a cure yeah you're like I need Pedialyte and they (laughs) never have Pedialyte so you get Gatorade and then you're like this is gross but I usually don't get lemon lime so right no I don't not a popular flavor I'm usually choosing arctic something i like when it's blue okay i like when it's orange <laughs> but get that red stuff out of here yeah that's no too, that's like no no it's that's the wrong sort of that doesn't taste like health to me no and also you look like you've just been eating a popsicle <laughs> afterwards so. right right around your yeah. get popsicle mouth mm-hmm. well let's talk uh books and <laughs> not so much gatorade bought anything fun recently yeah well i mean i'm thinking about the last book i bought my um my niece naomi is four and she just turned four so i wanted to buy her a book i wanted to be the reinforcement of literature you know and i also recently went on this epic uh camping trip hike with my brother my sister-in-law his three kids and my partner jacob and uh so, you know, we were gearing up to go on this hike and it was Naomi's birthday. So I bought her this children's book at City Lights. I just moved to San Francisco um, called The Hike by Alison Farrell. The story is that I gave it to her and she was so excited about it. And she was like, this is gorgeous. And then I was like, let's read it. And she was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then I keep asking her, like, Naomi, do you want to read? Do you want to read the book now? And she's like, no. so so i'm waiting to read this book the hike it's really beautiful it's about these friends who go on a hike yeah so anyway shout out to children's books and that's the that's the last book i bought wait waiting to read it naomi naomi if you're listening it's time i'm I'm waiting to read the book with you (laughs) that's great my brother ethan if you're listening let's uh let's read it to her (laughs) it's time yeah yeah I was sent a couple really fun books. I am really excited about these are both these both come out in January. Mm-hmm. I'm already thinking about the future. I'm mm-hmm. already thinking about 2024. Oh wow! And so this is beauty- very on brand for my book to be thinking about the future. So. <laughs> <laughs> this is um, Beauty Land by mm. Marie Helen Bertino. Mm, cool. I absolutely love 2 A.M. at the Cat's Pajamas. It's one of my mm. favorite books written ever, and I also loved uh, her sophomore novel parakeet and this is her third and it's about a um 
a kid that's born and believes to uh, their single mother mm-hmm. and uh, discovers that she's probably an alien mm. and when they when her mom gets a fax missing she starts faxing her extraterrestrial family her thoughts on the world as mm. it is mm. i don't understand how a plot can pull out of that but i'm very excited i know i'm in good hands mm-hmm. because i so loved her other two books wow that sounds great and then i also got this really fun young adult novel uh the invocations by crystal sutherland hmm. And this is about three witches who are on very different sides of their magical journeys. And there's also a serial killer running in the background that one of them is hunting. And then all three of them begin Mm -hmm. working together. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I love witches. And I love that there is a world where there are three of them on three different journeys. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to be a fun Do they journey together? I think so. Yeah. Who know, I don't know yet. Which is aliens and AI. Yeah. We got it, we got it all covered. Yeah. We do have it all covered. And mm-hmm. that's as good a segue as any <laughs> to, to artificial. Can you tell the listeners who might not have encountered it yet since it just came out? Can you tell them what it's about? What, um, yeah. what the story is? Sure. Yes. The elevator pitch for the book, which is it's a hard book for an elevator pitch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's there's a lot going which on. Which is why you <laughs> toss that one to me. <laughs> right probably. back to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's um. so this is a family memoir. It's a story about my father, Ray Kurzweil, an inventor and futurist um, who has been saving the artifacts and the writing of his father, Frederick Kurzweil who was a pianist and conductor from Vienna, uh, who died in 1970. So I never met him. Mm. And his story is he fled the Nazis in 1938 because he was a talented musician and somebody essentially saved his life. So he's a sort of mythical figure in my family. And my father has been saving his writing, saving his artifacts, uh, because he's been working on this project uh, to create a chatbot that writes in my grandfather's voice. Mm. So you might be familiar with large language models. They're kind of in the news lately. Yeah. This chatbot, it exists um, in some form. You know, we can talk more about sort of what that form is. Um, but in, you know, 2016, 17, 18, uh, there was this early large language model, maybe more of like a medium-sized language model <laughs> <laughs> because these things develop fast. Um, that was built and it, it only spits out writing that my grandfather actually wrote. So it's, it's like, unlike some of the large language models you might have, um, experienced now, uh, this, this chat bot is just built from my grandfather's words. And so no book, predictive text, no, no, yeah, no predictive or no generative text mm-hmm. as they call it. It's like a selective model. Okay. And the book is about my experience wading through my grandfather's archives and helping my father with that project as a way for me to get to know my grandfather. Um, I'm interested in my grandfather because he was an artist and I'm, I'm an artist. Uh, he's a musician. I'm a cartoonist. So I was always really curious about him and this felt like a really interesting way to get to know him. Mm-hmm. Uh, also a really interesting way to get to know my father better because he's a very interesting person. Um, and then that story is told alongside because it's a memoir. It's told alongside stories from my life um, at that period. And the relevant story is that I was uh, 
trying to figure out who I was, trying to figure out my partnership with my partner, Jacob, who's a moral philosopher, who's also a character in the book, trying to figure out how we were going to balance our lives of intellectual and artistic interest with more mundane things like where are we going to live? And then also experiencing just time passing and all the philosophical questions that arise as time passes. (laughs) Yeah. Trying to figure out who you are and who you should love and what you should do with your life. So, you know, it's about the meaning of life. Yeah. (laughs) It swirls around all of these things. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I love that I saw on the page, literally, Mm -hmm. is uh, Blankets by Craig Thompson. Like, Mm. And I also saw it in your, I, I felt like I saw it in your art as well like it swirls in that mm-hmm. way around memory and it and can leap into these different mm-hmm. storylines mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I, I saw it on the page and i thought i know i knew this was a, a building block for you mm-hmm. can you talk about you including it you, you mean you saw the book blankets yeah. <laughs> in the background of some scene yeah. yes yes yeah because that's a technique from my first book and from many graphic novels and memoirs that i admire where if something's an influence for you you can literally just physically draw it onto the page you know (laughs) right there's tons of tons of book titles in there that are significant um well blankets is a big influence for me because it's such a sprawling memoir about you know like love and purpose and spirituality and family um that book is about craig thompson i mean it's sort of an auto fiction but Mm -hmm. um Craig Thompson's like fallout with Christianity and how it's intersecting with this love, you know, romantic relationship that he has. And there's a lot of symbolism in that book. Yeah. You know, there's like these like sort of spiritual symbols, this fan symbol. There's a lot of Jesus symbolism. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of like Madonna symbolism. Um, And that, that books that use those kinds of recurring motifs, Mm -hmm. graphic books that do that. I'm, I'm very influenced by, um, so you want me to talk about other other influences? <laughs> I would love to hear. I yeah. mean, but the, I saw the Craig Thompson too, and just like the full bleed of the page. Like yeah, they yeah. he always pushed all the way to the full end yes. of the page, and I see that you're doing they, these drawings go all the way to the end. They do, and that's a nightmare. <laughs> that's like a that's a graphic nightmare because, uh, you know, oh God, I mean, you have to create extra bleed art. Okay, you know, we don't we don't want to get into the weeds here, but when you do full bleeds you have to create extra art and you don't know exactly where the page is going to end so you're thinking about like the tiny little lines at the edge and like is the page going to cut it off here is the page going to cut it off here and like do I want this part of the character's hair to be shown or not and you know you have to make a lot of those decisions but I really like full bleeds because I feel like you're in the book you're just like you're so immersed in whatever the imagery is and it it feels especially with a memoir like you're deeper inside the mind of the creator Mm -hmm. like I think just especially the fact that your hands are touching the ink you know like when you have a border like your hands aren't touching the drawing your hands are touching the white space right and so this is like this book is so much about holding and touching things people artifacts um in opposition to the themes, you know, which are all about kind of these cerebral things and AI, which is, you know, non-physical. But I wanted to be contrasting that with this like very physical embodied experience of reading it because that was a part of my experience of building this, helping my father collect my my grandfather's artifacts and enter them into the machine. It was like I had a physical relationship with these documents. So the physicality of the book was super important to me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, f- I felt that a lot. Mm-hmm. 
You were saying about your influences. Who mm-hmm. else is on the page here? Yeah. Well, Al- Alison Bechdel is probably my biggest graphic influence um, because of the way that she uses the narrative voice and the way that she brings in all these different, you know, like philosophical ideas, historical ideas. Um, and Fun Home is about her father. Um her father's death and his sexuality and her sexuality and trying to fit herself into his his life and his legacy and so that that project of somebody who's like I'm trying to get to know my family legacy and I'm but I'm really trying to get to know myself but like my family is so pressing on my identity and the way that I want to understand my family are through these larger questions and larger themes and so I'm going to be like looking to literature, looking to history, looking to philosophy um, as a way to understand myself and my family. And then also like elevate my story so that I kind of become an archetype for Mm. these dynamics that other people will will relate to. I see Alison Bechdel's approach to personal writing as like she's making herself, she's reaching beyond herself by being in conversation with other books, other historical um, references and you know psychology and philosophy so that's that's a big um, influence for me and then also this way of using comics where your narrative voice is maybe doing something else than what the image is doing and creating that kind of resonance for people where like the voice is talking about one thing and the scene is showing you something else and that like space between the two is making your brain like just freak out mm-hmm. <laughs> like in a really fun way um she does that a lot and that's that's uh that's exciting to me I always want to be doing that and then I think another big influence is Chris Ware because of the way he uses the page as this intricate map you know and like in my first book I have actual maps that I think we probably talked about (laughs) last time (laughs) um in this book I wasn't you know, it's funny. I started off actually one of the first pages of this book was a map of my father's office. Um because I I was like, "Oh, maps. I did that in my last book. Like I'll draw a map of my father's office and like we'll get to know him that way." And right. then I was like I was like, "No. Like <laughs> this book this book is not about physical space in the same way that my last book was, but I still want to think about the page as a map. Mm-hmm. But I'm just going to do it in a way that's like not explicit." So I want to be thinking about like um, just like how I can kind of make the movement of the page meaningful mm-hmm. um, and like draw people's eye around in interesting ways. Chris Ware is amazing yeah. at that. I always remember the in building stories, the bee following the yeah. bee around and the, the bees. Zine. Right. The bees journey. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, I, I definitely saw that here as well, mm-hmm. but something that I saw here that I feel like I don't see in other comics, um, or other graphic novels is these screens. Your, mm-hmm. your, mm-hmm. your screens are all over and like, you're actually like transcribing emojis mm-hmm. from like the emoji that they could have chosen. You're, right. You're showing like the entire array of them. Or right, like when someone's texting and it's like you see that they chose the crying face and then you see all the other options and it's it's like I I did spend a lot of time drawing screens in the digital world and doing it by hand. 
and doing it over and over again. Like I did, I was, didn't want to copy and paste. I, I wanted to avoid copying and pasting any images in this book. I mean, there's some moments where that had to happen, but like, I really wanted every page that you look at to have like every line of ink was its own new line of ink. And wow. then when I started like drawing screens, I just realized like how much information we are looking at all the time. Like that was a really interesting revelation in the process of this book is just like, oh, I'm just going to like draw this website, you know, because I want people to see that I'm, you know, like logging on to Instagram or whatever. And like the amount of detail in every single like, you know, slide of Instagram that you're looking at, like the amount of like dots and arrows and symbols and you know like pictures and you know and like comments and little like hearts and there's just there's so much information that we're looking at all the time in the digital world and so the process of recreating it was like whoa Mm -hmm. (laughs) like the amount of time that it takes you to sit and draw just something as simple as like what you see on your phone yeah um that was uh i mean that feels like a thesis of the book in a way that there's like the digital world has an overwhelming amount of information and I'm going to like slow down and draw it. And like, what is that going to do for me? And what is that going to do for the reader? Well, it's also versus this lack of information because mm-hmm. they're, you know, that the chat bot with uh, your grandfather is incomplete. There's like there's mm-hmm. stuff that you want mm-hmm. that right. isn't there. Right. Right. Meanwhile, right. Mm-hmm all of this information about you, your life is Mm -hmm. fully available. Like you can know the exact moment you were at least sitting down and writing an email. Yes, definitely. Yeah. That's another theme that's emerging through this, through this project um, is that, you know, the idea of like using my grandfather's archives to get to know him. It's, it's very overwhelming processing all the information we have saved of him. And yet it's like a, it's like, probably 0.00001% of his life. And then like when you think about how much information of my life is preserved, it's still probably like 1%, you -hmm. know, but it's enormous. Like it's enormous. So like human life is enormous. Yeah. Every like moment of our, you know, experience is just like full of information. And so like the thesis that my father puts forth in, in the book is like, information is identity Mm -hmm. and so we are you know possibly one day in the future we will be able to kind of resurrect identity through preserving and recreating information and that's like that thesis when you appreciate how much information there is in a human life like just like that thesis becomes like even more sort of overwhelming or like even more just mystifying you know like how could we ever capture that Mm -hmm. and yet we capture so much and we used to capture nothing so like when you think about the future it really is i don't know it really is like a an open question whether or not that kind of capture and preservation is possible Mm. especially when you look i mean one thing that really resonated with me was um was fred's despair Mm -hmm, (laughs) like mm -hmm. he is he is a he's had real trouble with his mental health but also i was thinking too of like the times that i've journaled in like times of great distress yeah like you you're journaling you're already like um 
I don't know, indulging this part of yourself. So you're like feeling all of your feelings and sometimes that's enough to move on. Right. Right. And so like you can't, you, you get this picture of someone with a dark cloud hanging over Mm -hmm. their head, Mm -hmm. but it was only one, like 0.1% like you're saying. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean like a theme that comes up in the book is this question of like, what do you have preserved? And so then what is remembered of you? And I think, especially in the digital world, so much of us have preserved like our public self or our professional self. And so like a theme that comes up with my grandfather is just how much of his archives are this, either this bureaucratic self, Mm -hmm. um, which is another thing we can talk about, sort of like why him as a, you know, a Holocaust fleeing Jewish person would be so meticulous about preserving his bureaucratic self so it's like parentheses around that theme. Um, but then there's also his professional self because he was very concerned about getting a job. So the amount of cover letters in the book, in the archives, there's just like cover letter, cover letter, cover letter. And there's like, they're all very similar. And then there's all the rejections for the cover letters, <laughs> like just so much of that. And then there's this tiny little piece, which is like his internal life, mm-hmm. which are like these journals that I find, um, which are very cryptically written and um require a lot of interpretation to transcribe and like that's documented in the book yeah and like that I mean, that's yeah. a really beautiful mm-hmm. portion when you realize that you can read it mm-hmm. that it's right. that you can you've you can see the letters in yeah. his scrawl right right and no one else can <laughs> yeah i mean and it's so there's like there's like this uh there's what's typed there's what's handwritten there's what i can read that's handwritten there's what i can't read that like there's all these levels of sort of like what's interpretable um and that finding that piece of his internal life which as you noted is like very dark and full of despair um it's kind of like the only piece of his internal life that i found Mm -hmm. and i mean it was a relief for me to like know that he that he had that but then it's like well what how much despair was a part of him Mm -hmm. was it a normal amount was you know it's like there's all these questions but you were writing in his hand like drawing his hand what was that like yeah i mean that goes back to the element of the book that like the process of it was so important to me um especially because it took so long uh to i was like i know i'm going to be with this for a long time you know Mm -hmm. so i want the process to be not only like have some element of pleasure but also be meaningful Mm -hmm. you know so it was important to me that the book be hand done and I, it was important that I like spent time with his actual, the actual like lines of his life, you mm-hmm. know, like, so, I mean, I would, I, my process was like, I took all these photos I and mean, there's also all these levels of digitization and then back to analog and then into digit digitization again. There's like a lot of movement uh, mm-hmm. between those two, two different uh, modes, but I would like take photos of his, um, for example, a letter he wrote and then it would be in my computer and then I would take my computer to my studio, you know, cause I lived in California and the archives were in Massachusetts. And then I would like turn off the lights in my studio, hold up my, uh, arches, hot press paper, you know, this thick drawing paper and like trace my computer screen and pencil to like get his hand, you know, trace like mm-hmm. over the lines and then I would turn the lights back on <laughs> and then I would ink over my own pencil, mm-hmm. you know, and I just like, I did that over and over again for 
every part of the book that contains some sort of primary document. There was like this tracing huh. um, part of the process. And then, you know, you trace and then you kind of have to fix the things that you didn't get right where your hand was quivering or like, you know, you have to edit a little bit. But um, there was like this really close looking that happened over and over again with his his handwriting and other artifacts from his life. And I just felt like that was a way that I was accessing a certain kind of knowledge that feels important to me. And I guess I would label that kind of knowledge embodied knowledge. Mm -hmm. Like my hand started to learn something about the way that his hand moved. Yeah. And that just felt like, okay, well, what is like, I mean, a big question of the book is like, what is the value add of humans in the future? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like that's like, like that's important to me. You know, I've grown up with these ideas about AI coming for us and Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of positivity in there that we can talk about, but it's scary to think about like what matters about humanity in a digital, you know, artificially intelligent future. And for me, it was like the way that we understand through our bodies. Mm-hmm. Like there's a way in which computers, robots could simulate that kind of knowledge, you know, possibly, but at least the kinds of machines and algorithms that we're dealing with now, you know, like large language models and, their way of knowing things and understanding things doesn't include the mark of the body and the way that the body holds information. And so it just felt really important to me that like that was a part of the process and that that came through to the reader. Your dad is a writer and quite famous. He's had a lot of ink written about him. Mm -hmm. How did it feel to be able to add your point of view as his daughter. Yeah. I think that was also an important motivation in taking on this theme. Um, because, you know, when you, well, a seminal memory for me is uh, going to this movie premiere of a documentary about my father called Transcendent Man, which is already like, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot there, you know? So, um, I mean, I, I, I've always been really proud of my father and like very inspired by him, which is, which is nice. You know, like it, it, it could, I could have felt differently about sort of his being like a, a, a person who's had, has a lot of achievements, but I've always felt really proud and inspired by, by him. And there's this feeling like you, like, you feel this sort of swell of like, oh, this, this person's like so hopeful about the future you know, and they're so, and it's like, it's so inspiring that they've done so much with their life, you know? And that's a feeling I've always had about my father, like watching him publicly. But I think there's also this feeling of like, oh, but he's a real person. Yeah. (laughs) Like, like, okay, there's a movie called Transcendent Man. Like that doesn't make him sound like a real person, you know, that makes him sound like a, like some Messiah figure. Yeah. And I think people in the AI tech space, um, are looking for messiahs and create messiahs. And, you know, f- some people feel that way about my father. Some people feel that way about Elon Musk. You know, people are looking for these kind of like spiritual gurus to take us into a future that is scary or uncertain, you know, that is new, that is we're questioning our place in it. And so he's been positioned by some people who are really excited about his vision of the future as a kind of messiah figure. And so that's like that element is strange because he's like m- my dad who makes like dumb jokes and you yeah. know walks around like with stains on his shirts and a Ziploc bag and full like of <laughs> Ziploc bags full of supplements and like 
carries a paper bag on the plane because he doesn't want to check a bag. Like, you know, not only is he a person, but he's like a very particularly um, quirky person and like very human, mm-hmm. very human. Like he is not um, somebody who's like the caricature of the sort of tech bro move fast and break things. Like he is the opposite of move fast and break things as a person. That just felt like, I don't know. There's just something in the historical record that is missing, which is like the personness mm-hmm. of this person who's my father. And so it just feels like comics are a really good place to kind of bring things down to earth. You know, it's like, why is that? I think it has to do with just the, the role of drawing and the way drawing is connected to our bodies and just like the kind of, there's just, there's like a simplicity and a bluntness to comics. Um, and there's like a connection to your hand and a connection to this sort of like personal felt sense. I mean, it's how you see him. So it's it's your drawing of him. Right. Right. So the subjectivity of my relationship with my father could come through in a comic, um, in a particular way. And so, yeah, I think like I wanted to find a way to communicate like this sort of realness of the way my father is an inspiring person, which felt like a different story than maybe the one in like a documentary about him. You know, it's like he's inspiring to me because of, you know, his relationship to his parents, his relationship to his family, like the way he sort of moves through the world as just like a human person who has physical struggles, you know, who has mental health struggles, who like tries, you know, to inspire himself and tries to like, like his vision of the future is a little bit self-actualizing. You know, Mm -hmm. he's like an optimistic person because he feels that's necessary because we come from a history with a lot of horrible things in it. Um, And so I just, I, I felt like that needed to be like a part of, the story about him right he could be pessimistic mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he chooses not right <laughs> which yeah. is which is nice mm-hmm. yeah one of my favorite parts of the book is your uh first foray into vr and like he's doing a ted talk mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you're like <laughs> dancing behind him yeah can you talk that's a great part of the, can you tell a little bit more about that because it's <laughs> yes. so good yeah so i mean another element in the book is these this sort of unique relationship my father and I have through work and through projects that we've done together which connects to this sort of theme in my family which is like um, people are very ambitious um, which I think I'm tracing back to like my grandfather's origin story of Mm -hmm. like he was either going to die in the holocaust or he was going to be plucked, you know, by a benefactor and have his life saved because he was a talented musician who the world decided needed to be around. So like we're not going to let him die with the rest of the untalented people. <laughs> we're going to we're going to pluck him and save him and like he gets to live in America now. And like that's a story for a lot of um a lot of Jewish people or just like a lot of people who come from a uh historical situation where there is uh only so many people who get to survive. Yeah. You know. And so that inheritance of like you must be ambitious um, in order to live is is a theme in the book. So this is, this is a prelude to saying that like a feature of me and my father 
of both of our characters is that we like are always working (laughs) and so like but we want to connect so we connect through work and that's like that's still true obviously (laughs) so so this is one of the early experiences of us um doing a project together so i was 14 years old and my father was giving a ted talk uh, in California. It was, it was still in California at the time. So this was like 2001 or something. Yeah. 2001. And he, uh, you know, original OG Ted (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, he decided he wanted to demonstrate the promise of virtual reality by transforming himself into a totally different person. And like, in his case, it's like a person who he felt was a part of his soul. Mm Mm-hmm. The person's name is Ramona, mm-hmm. and she is a young female rage rock singer, sort of like an Alanis figure, Alanis Morissette figure, because my father was a huge fan of Alanis Morissette. Um, he's like, doesn't listen to her anymore, but he was he went through a At phase. At the time, yeah. Yeah, he was like a diehard. He feels like he discovered her. Like <laughs> <laughs> like, but he, he was into that kind of music, that sort of expressive, like, you know, yeah. like women just like raging about their feelings like that really spoke to him so he felt like he wanted to become this character in virtual reality and then he was going to demonstrate that by learning some songs writing some songs singing some other songs for example white rabbit um and then i was going to be a part of it as a backup dancer why i needed to be a part of it (laughs) i don't know there's no reason why i needed to be a part of it other than like why not Right. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a dancer. I, I grew up as a dancer and it was like, I mean, I really wish I could go back in time and, and like figure out why, <laughs> <laughs> why was, why was that an idea that he had? I really think he just wanted to do something with me and like, it's why so not? Nice. Yeah. yeah. So then we went to California and we did this, uh, we did this performance where he was transformed into Ramona and I was transformed into these three male backup dancers. And the joke is that the, the backup dancers were all made in the image of the founder of Ted, who is like a, you know, not particularly felt older man. Okay. Um, and for some reason he was shirtless. I think it was supposed to be funny. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, it sounds funny. It, it, it was maybe funny. Uh, I don't know. You know, I was 14. I don't know exactly how people were experiencing it. But the way it worked logistically is like we had all these wires strapped to us. It was motion sensor detection. Um, so like when we moved, our avatars on the screen would move. Oh, so like the ping pong covered suit type of yes, thing? Yes, it was like a ping pong covered suit. And, um, you know. cap. Yeah. It was. It was. <laughs> For its time, yeah, high tech, totally. But like, if you saw it now, you would be like, <laughs> "Oh God, it's very like glitchy." It was glitchy, and the characters looked a little bit strange. It was uncanny. It was, yeah, it was definitely in the uncanny valley. Um, my father also used voice modification, so he sang. He's not a singer. He sang, and it was like dialed up several octaves. So and it sounded like Ramona. Sounded like Ramona, and. It was like weird. It was very weird. He wrote a book about Ramona. That's different. That's a different female alter ego. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So my father's got this, this sort of interest in alter egos and inter- and they're all women, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, and so I think he feels like the virtual world and the creative world is a place to get to express these parts of you that he felt for his generation. Obviously it's different now. 
but for his generation his identity who he was like he didn't have a way to express the the female part of him and so he created Ramona um he also created Danielle who is like a a fictional superheroine a young woman who solves all the world's problems and he wrote about her in a in a novel which I illustrated um and so yeah I think it's interesting that I've always been a part of the projects where my father is like accessing this part of himself that is expressive Mm -hmm. you know it's like he doesn't have permission maybe to be expressive but through some of the artistic projects that we've done together he creates opportunities for himself to be expressive and I've been like a little bit of a guide in that realm I can totally see that and I totally see the expression coming through in your own drawing too I mean the way you depict music and and um and Fred's music mm-hmm. and Fred in general like some it's some of your most expressive drawing mm-hmm. it seems like you kind of leave the um cartooning part of it behind to get more into the yeah. artistic depiction yeah it was an interesting challenge to try to draw music yeah like you know I I do an exercise in my classes where I ask my students to draw various things and like one of the prompts is like I play a song and often I'll play my grandfather's music in this prompt and they usually you know I'll play it so it'll be like Chopin or something and they'll draw a person sitting by a fireplace or, or they'll draw some memory they have of like a piano teacher or you know they'll draw really beautiful interesting things but it's somewhat rare that they draw abstractions mm-hmm. unless I'm sort of like prompting them to do that yeah that's not usually what people draw but for me when I hear music I see visual abstraction that might be like a little bit of a synesthetic thing Mm -hmm. so I was really interested in the challenge of like can I show that to people like can I show people what I see in my mind when I hear classical music Um, or can like my brush strokes map this the beats of the song in a way that looks like something you know Mm -hmm. because when I first started trying to do that it just looked like scribbles it didn't look interesting so it was the process of figuring out like how can I make abstract symbols look interesting and like actually map for me at least I don't know if other people can see it but for me it's going to map onto the particularities of these songs Um, because it felt really important to me that I communicate something about my grandfather's music to the reader in visual form Mm -hmm. you know and so that that became like an important challenge figuring out how to do that how does how is your memory after you've been mining it and drawing things from it yeah that's tough okay like there is a swirling between for example the scene when i met jacob the real scene is we were at summer camp together academic camp also known as nerd camp (laughs) we were both teachers there and we met on elevator duty which like what is elevator like why was that a thing I don't know anyway we were like manning the elevator helping kids move into the dorms and um I have like a few really slim impressions of the actual memory like I kind of remember like I was sitting on the floor he was sitting on the floor like I vaguely remember like the vibe I don't remember as much about like what we actually talked about but I have replaced that sort of memory or I've recreated that that space, that gap and like what was the actual thing that we talked about with this scene in the book, 
which is a conversation that we've had at some point, but like didn't necessarily have at that exact point. And like, that is kind of how our memory works is like, we're always like bringing one thing in and another thing in and reconstructing it and being like, Oh, maybe it happened like this. And this is the kind of thing we would have talked about. And like, we're always kind of doing that. Um, but in the book, I've just like collaged things together. Mm-hmm. And now I remember the book so vividly. And like my living memory is like still impressionistic. But I like, I don't know. It feels like I carry the story of the the story I've recorded in the book. Like that's the one I've kind of etched into my heart, if that yeah. makes sense. Like even if I know we may not have talked about Brave New World and 1984 in that moment that we met, mm-hmm. it's like it fits that that's what we talked about because <laughs> I know we talked about that at some point and I'm going to like, I feel like memory is a great simplifier. Yeah. So it's like, this is the simplified version, you know, of like the themes that we were exploring the first summer we met is like, I've, I've nailed it down in this conversation and that like, it's, there's something helpful about the simplification of memory. And like, that's kind of what I'm actualizing in comics is like, I'm just, solidifying the simplification that already happens in my mind when I bring forward concepts from my past into the present. And you see now that's something that robots definitely (laughs) can't do do that. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, we don't, there's so much mystery about what's really happening with algorithms that spit out language Mm -hmm. and seem to know things like it's, it, there's a lot of mystery there. There's a lot of mystery in the human brain. There's a lot of mystery in these algorithms, but it's different. Yeah. yeah. The way the algorithm is spitting out knowledge, it, the ones that we have today, it's, it's very different. There's not like this level of self-reflection. And I think it's important to remember for your own personal timeline and the timeline of this book that this AI mm-hmm. of Fred that you're talking to, this is before... Mm-hmm. chat gpt was r- unleashed yes, you know like this yeah. is not everyone knew what a large link i mean people still don't but yeah, yeah. um pe- people didn't know any of this stuff in the way that ai has truly taken right. over the headlines in the past i don't yes. know year and a half two years yeah the book felt really sci-fi for most of its creation i used to call it a sci-fi memoir Mm -hmm. and now it's outdated now the technology in the book is like so outdated it's like embarrassing how outdated (laughs) but i but i think there's several important differences between and this like might be too into the weeds but like you know if anyone wants to ever talk to me about this stuff it's it's interesting to me there's several important differences between like the way the um language model for my grandfather works versus say chat gpt yeah um and the difference has to do with like um where the answers where the like data that is given to you come from yeah like is it created and then given to you or is it does it already exist and it's found and the latter is how the chatbot works so i find that technology really interesting and like in some ways more interesting to me personally, given my interest in sort of the past and the mm-hmm. relevance of the past, I find that a technology that helps you locate information that already exists in a really like sort of sophisticated way that has like more levels of understanding than like a keyword search, for example. Like I find that to be really useful and really meaningful. And like um, the generative stuff is is also cool, but it's like... Uh, 
sometimes I wonder like, well, what is this for? Right. Whereas like, it's very clear to me what the selective model is for. It's like, I'm going to ask you a question and you're going to find something that my actual real grandfather wrote. And you're going to give me an answer to that question. And it's going to be like a meaningful answer and a surprising answer. And like that experience was very interesting and meaningful. Mm-hmm. And when I talk with ChatGPT, I'm like, oh, cool. But it's like, I don't know. It's it's a different, it's, it's, it's not a, it's not connecting me to like a real person yeah. in the way that this chatbot is. Um, and I, yeah, I, I like, I find that element, the difference between th- those kinds of technologies interesting. When I was reading your book, I was noticing that how hard it would be to have like an emotional response to the AI mm-hmm. because of how you're forced to it literally like be in a weird room. Like yeah. there's like someone else there that's like running. Like there's like, there's all this stuff that like kind of, kind of holds you back from having like a one-on-one relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but how do you look back on that memory now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, so in the book, there's some, because this was a, it's an old technology now, um, but it was new then. I could only interact with the technology like in the actual place where the technology like, was like where created, the server was. like yeah. where the server was. So I had to like go to a weird room and like have somebody mediate for me. Um, and so that was a, um, in some ways that was like a barrier to connection. But it also, in some ways, made the experience have more of an aura Mm -hmm. (laughs) because, like, speaking of, like, I don't know, just thinking about kind of, like, art and technology and guru-ness, like, it it felt like there was something special that needed to be protected in the, like, strangeness of this technology. Yeah, it was like, ooh. And I, I don't know if that's I, I I think it's it's more has to do with sort of like business secrets and like companies not wanting you to like know how their new technologies work. Um, but it it felt like there was an aura, there was like a kind of mysticalness that I was imbuing the experience with. So it was kind of a haunting experience. It was like it's not that it was like a personal intimate experience of chatting with my grandfather. But there was like a a sense of the conversation feeling haunted. But I think I attribute that to like this very intense desire that yeah. I had for so many years to connect to this person that I was learning about. And it was like the experience of connecting through the chatbot and then the experience of like spending time with his archives and then drawing both of those experiences. Like they're all different. You know, some are more kind of like personal and meaningful and intimate. Some are like weird and wooey and like all of it kind of swirls around in the book and now in my like memory Mm -hmm. and all of it worked together to be like a very, I think, real deepening of my understanding of my grandfather. And it's like I'm in this position now where I can't tell you which kind of way of relating to him was the most salient yeah like i don't i can't pull them all apart they're all together they're all linked but they all like had a real effect on me and so it's yeah it's like uh it's a mystery to me sort of what it would be like to actually just have this like sophisticated chatbot of my grandfather that i could talk to you know that's what people are curious about is like well what is that 
experience in the future going to be like for people if mm. there are these disembodied chatbots of our dead ancestors that we can talk to and like i wish i could give people more insight into what that would be like but that actually wasn't my experience right mm -hmm. there's a movie uh that came out a few years ago called marjorie prime mm. uh, i haven't heard it where it's basically you it, it it's different parts of a timeline and you start with only one of the people is a hologram of a relative that like lives with them mm. but is like um constrained by the how the camera mm. moves like mm. and how the camera can make the hologram oh. but by the end it's like four holograms of ai characters talking to each other into infinity because mm. like that's all that's left and it started as a play but I think that that is what people think it's going to be like, that mm -hmm. they think they're going to be able to see someone across from them that has like basically the weight of mm -hmm. that real person. Mm -hmm. And they, I don't think that they're thinking that it's going to be on a screen at all. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, the vision of the future, like my father's vision of the future back to Ramona is like, we're all living in virtual reality in these, with these different like versions of ourselves that, you know, we astral project into like wherever we want them to be and you know right. that's that's yeah that's sort of like the the vision i mean but i think that that reality where like we're all just accustomed to virtual experiences that are as meaningful as real world experiences like that's we're so far from that because i think all of us now are in this experience with the virtual where we f don't find it we're, we're like the virtual experience that we all have now is like screens tiny little screens like do you ever think about how small your phone is <laughs> like how much time you spend looking at it and like that is very limited in terms of how much we can actually feel like we're having real experiences mm -hmm. and i think it's like there is this question like are we going to jump into a more embodied virtual world like, is that actually going to happen? Do you want to? I don't know. But like, I do know that a lot of my complaints about the digital world have to do with the fact that it's not embodied. Huh. So like, I'm very scared of the idea of living in a virtual world that is embodied, but I also don't like living in a virtual world that's not embodied. <laughs> and maybe the solution is less virtual worlds. But the virtual world does promise a lot of things that we really want, like the ability to be with people who we aren't physically with. You brought this book, actually, that I feel like does this other thing, Berlin mm -hmm. uh, by Jason Lutz, which t takes the past. And I thought it was going to be a personal. I thought this had some relation to reality. And it doesn't really. I mean, real things happen and right, there's real right. history right but there's some real characters and there's yes there's it's yeah. populated with some but it's mostly his invention of right. of research and yeah his own you know his own creative work it's a it's an incredible enormous another enormous undertaking um what made you recommend it to me yeah well yeah this book berlin it's first of all we just tell people how, I mean, we've been talking a lot about physicality. So I carried this book around all day. <laughs> it's 550 pages hardcover. It's very heavy. Yeah. Um, so I, I was, I like the fact that this book is like epic. 
because I felt with artificial that I was aware of the ambition of, of what I was taking on with all of the various themes. And um, I have always been looking for graphic novels that are, that are unapologetic about doing that too. I mean, one reason why uh, maybe people don't do that is because your book is really expensive. You know, <laughs> if it's, if it's almost 600 pages, this book is like $50. It's, well, it's expensive. And yeah, it should be said. I mean, it came out as, it came out as trade. I mean, like smaller version. I mean, it was volumes. It came out as books mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. before it became this huge volume. Right. Like this is ultimately an omnibus of, right, right. of the books, which is sort of wild to me because it was, this is not a superhero comic this is Mm -hmm. 1919 and 1929 Mm -hmm. um the weimar republic Mm -hmm. in berlin you know it's just you're following many different characters uh, many different uh types of people yes yeah so i mean the reason why i recommended it besides its ambition and heft well there's a personal reason the personal reason is i really wanted to read this book before i spent a semester in berlin and i did but then because it's so heavy, I like couldn't take it with me to Berlin. So I was rushing to finish it before I left. Right. <laughs> so the first time I read it, I read it quicker than I wanted to. And so I really wanted to spend more time with it. And then I also find the a book that is engaging with the Nazis and the Holocaust, but is not about the Holocaust and is not about the Nazis but is about the conditions of the world that made it such that that event happened. Yeah. I think is so interesting to me and so important. And there's like a, a lot of literature about the Holocaust. I mean, my first book is about the Holocaust, but there's like sometimes because the Holocaust is so enormous and so overwhelming and so devastating, like the subtler stories and the explanations for Mm. like why that period of the world happened can get lost yeah. in, in those like the enormity and the tragedy of those stories. And so this book is about like the period between World War One and World War Two in Germany where there was like a republic, um, there was like a revolution and um, the empire was was, you know, was gone. And there was this like attempt at, you know, like a republic that was fair and just and informed by socialist principles and it failed. And it like failed for interesting reasons. And then like the Nazis took over and history was sealed. And so I just find it so interesting to like be in this world where you're with people who don't know. I mean, you're with fictional people who don't know what's coming. And so there's this dramatic irony for the whole story of like, you know, what's coming Mm -hmm. and you see them kind of like headed for it. You know, there's this like line at the end about the main character is like kind of looking off into this like vast white expanse of like possibility, like Mm -hmm. right at the end of the book, right when you know exactly what's happening, (laughs) like the Nazis have taken over and history is sealed, but it like kind of ends with that main character not knowing what's coming. Like, I just think that's a very interesting place to spend time. Like, cause I, cause it makes you think about our, our moment now, which is sort of crazy because even he says like, I started, he started writing this book in 1996. Yeah. 1994. 94. Yeah. That's a, I mean, that's a long time for this project. And it came out in 2018 or something. Yeah. 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 So that's like a, that's a long gestational mm-hmm. period mm-hmm. that he was like in, in reviews as like the books were coming out, mm-hmm. the, the smaller volumes. 
you know, he's talking about like, I'm really depressed at how like this is becoming like more and more relevant that mm-hmm. these conversations are yeah. repeating because like that was something that I was feeling as I was reading this. It's just like, oh man. And that he <laughs> like, was like, not- I think I read this conversation on, you know, online yesterday. He was not predicting that necessarily. But yeah, so I'm like, I was thinking about, I mean, something I was thinking about with my book is like, oh, it's interesting that my book is coming out in a moment where people are talking about AI and people are talking about chatbots because I worked on it for so long. And like, I wonder if he felt like, oh, it's interesting that this book came out in like, you know, 2018, like Trump era Mm -hmm. when he'd been working on it for 20 something years but then I had this thought about his book which is like when you work on something for a really long time it's inevitably prophetic because history repeats itself like inevitably and so that's a little bit depressing but it's like a good it's a good thing for someone who's working on a really long project to keep in mind that like the things that really matter don't stop being relevant you know right and I think that there's even I think it's actually spinning faster but it used to be like a 30 year renewal and i think we're at a 20 year oh cycle of politics yeah oh which is very well that's yeah maybe that's technology making everything move faster i i will say that one of the most amazing achievements to me in this book uh someone who has i don't know maybe undiagnosed face blindness or something (laughs) but like i i could fully like completely recognize these characters Mm -hmm. even like zoomed out in a crowd like Mm -hmm. you can see the like a bit of their chin or just a bit of someone's nose at their glasses and you know exactly who they are. Yeah, it's amazing. Which is amazing for for a cast this big and for crowd scenes that are huge. Yeah, yeah. That you can pick out the character and be like, oh, yeah, there's Anne. She's right there. Yeah, there is like, because, you know, the book is called Berlin. In many ways, the main character is the city. Yeah, And every every character is sort of like a metonym of the whole city, but especially maybe like the first one, the artist character that we're introduced to at first. Yes. And like, it's so amazing to me that I care about every character and I, and they don't get that much stage time. And I have a sense of them all mattering to each other. And like the dramatic tension of the book moves me forward because I care about the ensemble, but I also care about the individuals that's amazing to me. I mean, I really don't know how he did it. Like, <laughs> I, I just am like in awe of, of this book. Uh, it's so unique. And like the way it's sort of also that approach to form is kind of like part of what he's trying to say about the like philosophy of that era, you mm-hmm. know, that people were like kind of trying to grapple with collectivity. Berlin ends up being punctuation a lot like Mm -hmm. in a scene like they'll have they'll have two characters talking and talking and talking and then it'll the the last panel will be Mm. a full pullback into like the city yeah yeah (laughs) and then you're like like, back hashtag berlin yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, in case you forgot yeah we are in berlin yeah (laughs) but it's it is first of all it's always a pleasure like these it's Mm -hmm. some of my favorite um parts of the book is just like seeing how he's drawing berlin Mm -hmm. yes yeah but it it just worked as it was effective always to see Mm -hmm. like and it also lent this other feeling that i had that like even when these characters were off the page they were living Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. stuff was going on to them that's so true And when we check in with them the next time it's 
Like life has happened to them. They're a little bit different. Right. That's so true. Yeah. And that's like, I mean, all writing does that obviously, but comics are thinking very intentionally about the white space and like what's not shown to you, you know? Yeah. And there's like, there's so much of that kind of technique in comics where like you show like a half a face or you show like, you know, somebody through a window and then you have a imagined sense of what's going on inside the house. Like there's just comics are always working with like the little trigger of projection and this whole book is doing that for like a thousand characters <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it felt bigger than a movie bigger than a, like a, a tv series even mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there were so many characters and like you said they get they don't have like the most stage time mm-hmm. but just a little bit of stage time that they have mm-hmm. is always really well utilized and there are even moments where like he does this a lot where you're passing by a crowd scene and you just get a snippet of 10 characters thoughts and some of them don't even make sense it's just like somebody counting or like somebody being like like there's one where some guy's just like remembering his wife's ass (laughs) there's just like he always puts at least one dirty thought and that made me (laughs) yeah that made me laugh well yeah because sexuality is such a big part of the book too yeah um and such a big part of kind of it felt to me like, I mean, historically, the Weimar Republic was an era where there was like a lot of sexual experimentation and like a lot of um, just liberation for different kinds of sexual identity and like art and music. And, you know, so that's like a part of the book historic uh, part of Berlin in this era historically. But the way that it's positioned in the book, it feels like that stuff is like this balm, like sex and art. And music is a balm for like just the utter catastrophe of everything else. Yeah. And like that's probably always true. <laughs> but I just love the juxtaposition and how I came away from the book feeling like um, like, oh, when everything sucks, like we can still have sex. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like it's good to remember. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the um, the underground uh, lesbian bar or gay bar. Mm hmm that those that sequence is like is the most joyous yeah yeah it was such a it's it's a huge epic um exciting devastating book Mm -hmm. i I am so glad that you um suggested it and put it on my desk because i had never i hadn't heard of it at all yeah and it makes me realize that like there's this whole world of, of graphic novels and comics that I'm yes. fully like not paying attention to that I'm that doesn't bleed over. This is especially it's especially weird to me that this book hasn't like won a bunch of awards and uh, and that it's not as well known about and it just kind of quietly came out and I mean I think people really like it but I guess I I, I ex- would have expected it to be a bigger deal. Yeah, yeah, it seems like it could have you know, it could have been this enormous. I don't know why it isn't. I, I it seems strange to me because it it feels like such a towering achievement. Yeah, that it it feels like the type of thing that would normally cross over into like mainstream booking. But right. I don't know why. Uh, maybe and maybe it ha- has. And I'm yeah. Just I guess maybe I don't. I I shouldn't speak to like how popular it is, but you know, everyone's heard of Mouse. Like yeah, you know what else people have heard of i mean what are the graph people have heard of alison bechdel usually um so it's, yeah it's like why yeah why isn't this as uh 
as well known. Um, yeah. But, you know, mm-hmm. that's why it's great for you to have brought it here. <laughs> and we, we, could, we are the arbiters. That's yes. the, we are the tastemakers. Yes. And, and we say, and we say yes to Berlin. Yes. Actually, we should move into the recommendation portion uh-huh. of the show. Uh, do you want to recommend something? Would you like me to go first? Um, yeah, I'll recommend. Can I recommend one graphic book and one non-graphic book? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. The graphic book I want to recommend because it just came out is my friend Navid Medavian's book, This Country, which is about three years that he and his wife spent living in rural Idaho. They kind of lit out for the country and tried to make a life. And it's about years that they spent doing that and you know uh spoiler (laughs) it didn't work out but it's a really beautiful memoir about just like relationship to the land and you know what it's like to live in middle america um as someone who comes from an immigrant background he's iranian and um it's just it's just like has really lovely drawings of nature and animals in it Hmm. and he took my class and cool. then wrote the book, so I get to take all the credit for it. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, but it's really Taught great. him everything he knows. Yeah. And then a uh, prose book I want to recommend is a book I think you should read alongside my book. It's called God, Human, Animal, Machine by Megan O'Geeblin. And um, it's a book about somebody from a religious Christian background falling from faith, um, becoming interested in transhumanist ideas like the ones that my father is a proponent of and um, thinking about the relationship between humans and machines and spirituality and like how we sort of put slot technology into this sort of spiritual role Um, and she's got so much background in philosophy and um, theology and knows a lot about tech and it's like but it's also a memoir and, and it's 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 not as much a memoir as my book is a memoir. It's it's more of sort of like an intellectual memoir. But you really are like with this person in their journey through different ideas that they're testing out about like the nature of reality. And she even talks about simulation theory. Like, <laughs> There's a lot in there that's really amazing. It's like a very special book. And I think reading it alongside my book would be very interesting for people. And I, I highly recommend that one. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds good. Mm-hmm. I'm going to recommend... A short story collection I just finished um, that I it completely took me by surprise how much I loved it. It's called Earth Angel by Madeline Cash, and it's uh, put out by Clash Books, which is a small publisher. Um, and it's these crazy, like extremely short short stories. The whole book is small; it's less than two hundred pages, and there's like fifteen to twenty short stories in there. I don't remember, but. All of them are fantastic. There's a great one. I think it's called Baby at the Drug Deal. Um, or there, there's one that I really loved called Slumber Party, where a woman is like, I want to have the slumber party experience I never got to have as a kid. <laughs> and so she's calling all of her friends to come to her party, and none of them want to. So she hires a slumber party service. <laughs> uh, it, and that all of these... Like- it's like a cuddle party or no? <laughs> almost <Yeah>. almost <laughs> it's it's a really Sounds like a scene from berlin but yeah <laughs> <laughs> so it's really funny and really like um profane and if you like short stories this is like a fantastic short story collection i feel like that it will it will not be the last time we're hearing about madeline cash mm, nice so i think that that i recommend that to the world and to you okay all right 
And of course, that's, I mean, that's the recommendation that I really can say is go buy Amy's book, Artificial. Mm -hmm. um, it is, it, there's a lot that it gives and there's so much to it. And uh, there's, you'll, you'll come away thinking interesting thoughts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's the goal. Well, Amy, thank you so much for hanging out on yeah. So Many Damn Books. It was awesome to have you again. Thank you. It was wonderful to be here. Thanks for reading my book and giving it your attention. Mm -hmm.